Good morning, pioneers. New semester, same call. Are you listening? I know I am. And welcome to Answering the Call, Exploring Scholar Activism at TWU and Beyond, a collaboration between the TWU Experiential Learning Office, the Pioneer Center for Student Excellence, and the Book and Common Program here at TWU. Answering the Call takes a look at the intersection of scholarship and activism through the eyes of our TWU campus community, focusing on topics ranging from politics to identity to reproductive justice to public scholarship and everything in between. And I promise y'all, I learned so much from each one of our guests. And today, we have one of my favorite faculty members ever with us, Dr. Daniel Phillips Cunningham. Now a bit about Dr. Phillips Cunningham. She's a national awarded author, an incisive writer and thought leader who's committed to black feminist theory and women's history and politics. She certainly keeps the fire coming inside and outside of the classroom. And let me not forget that she has the best sense of humor and one of the best laughs you've ever heard. But let me stop here, Dr. Phillips Cunningham. And I wanna ask you the first question, which is, can you tell us a bit more about yourself? As Alaya mentioned, my name is uh, Dr. Danielle Phillips Cunningham. I am the Multicultural Women's and Gender Studies Program Director, and I am also an Associate Professor in the program. Um, I've been at TWU for 11 years. It almost doesn't even seem like it. <laughs> Seems like the years have gone by um, so quickly. Um, I'm originally from Atlanta, Georgia, proud Georgian. Um, especially proud because of what just happened <laughs> in Georgia <laughs> earlier this year in terms of um, the election of the first senator of the state um, since Reconstruction and also a progressive young um, Jewish um, activist um, to the U.S. Senate. Um, I, I attended and, and graduated from Spelman College so going to an HBCU for women um, has especially um, shaped my thinking about the world and about scholar activism overall. It's there um, where I really developed a passion for scholar activism. And um, I really enjoy being at TWU because these women's spaces, um, just having a women's space, um, is, is unique uh, for higher education. And so TWU is also a unique space um, where I can expand on that scholar activism. So thanks again for having me. Awesome, thanks for being here. And we are gonna jump right into the questions and keep it going. And I first wanna ask you, how do you define scholar activism? And do you yourself identify as a scholar activist? Yeah, um, that's a great question. Scholar activism, I view scholar activism as uh, pushing against the grain, right? So asking questions um, and also teaching in ways that really critique and question the status quo um, and, and, and questioning um, those who are in power and the beliefs and perspectives of people who are in power um, and power relations just in general. Um, and so I come to this, of course, as an African-American woman. And so scholar activism is very important because to me, because higher education uh, was not for us. The, the system, the institution of higher ed was not for black women originally. 
I mean, we were barred from many um, colleges and universities um, across the country, of course, since slavery, but even after um, emancipation. So these histories um, that tend to privilege uh, the thoughts and the beliefs of um, white elite men, um, there's still some traces of that in higher education today. So scholar activism, I think, is a very important intervention into higher ed um, to make sure that we continue to grow spaces for uh, marginalized communities and people um, so that we can truly always make it a, a welcoming space to all. Um, and so I define myself as a scholar activism, um, but I'll add to that that I consider myself a feminist scholar activist, right? Because um, I take an intersectional approach to everything that I do. And I think it's always important to always question um, the inequalities that exist at the intersections of race, class, gender, sexuality, and other identity markers. Um, so that that really shapes everything. And, and I started to develop, as I mentioned earlier, um, that passion for scholar activism at Spelman College. Um, I never really liked school until I got to college, never did. Um, you know, I remember taking a history class, a Caribbean history class in high school, and the teacher never talked about slavery at all. And I'm like, how can you talk about Caribbean history <laughs> from what? the 1700s on and you don't even mention slavery? Like, yeah. what the You know? So that just goes to show how education in general, right, has just not always been a place for us. But we have always um, asserted our right to these spaces. Um, and so at Spelman, you know, I was just surrounded by um, Black women who were um, the first sometimes in their field. Um, I wasn't a, um, an econ major, but um, on campus, um, because it's a liberal arts school and we had to take classes from all different departments, I mean, we were taught by some of the first Black women economists in the country. Um, and so people were pushing at those boundaries at every um, aspect. And so I was a women's studies major there and was taught by Beverly Gosheftal, as well as other women who started some of the first women's and gender studies programs um, at colleges and, and universities. So there was always that push against um, what is accepted um, and, um, and power. Um, you know, and white supremacy as well. So I, I really ground myself in that tradition of Black feminist um, scholar activism. Wow, thank you so much. And so uh, that leads me into my, our next question, or my next question about the pillars that guide your work or the principles that guide your work. But I wanted to just mention that just listening to you, even in that brief introduction, reminds me of how Black feminist work and particularly Black feminist scholar activism, literally is reparative work, is corrective yeah. work for yes. those of us who, like you said, these institutions are not made for, and here we are putting mm -hmm. truths right in, in their faces yeah. and, and making spaces 
more accessible to us on a daily basis. And so uh, you mentioned briefly a few things that uh, uh, principles and pillars that guide your work, but uh, if you wanted to talk a little bit more about those principles, what are they? How do they guide your work? How do they shape your work? Yeah, yeah. So um, now you've raised some good points and those um, some of the, the foundational ideas of black feminist thought guide my work in scholar activism, you know, and so, you know, in thinking about just the women who came before us, like Mary Church Terrell, Anna Julia Cooper, Ida B. Wells Barnett, um, even getting to a more contemporary period, Angela Davis, uh, Beverly Guy Hall. you know, um, in many ways, my work falls within that tradition. So I consider my work um, as very, as coming from a lineage of Black women who always um, questioned and critiqued at these intersections. So intersectionality is a pillar of my work and, and not the watered down intersectionality. I think that- I knew you was gonna say it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because that's the tricky thing, right? It's like for the longest, Black women's work has been marginalized for so long, but now what's interesting is it's becoming more central to a lot of things. And so, um, and in that, it becomes more accessible, then sometimes it becomes watered down. And um, the critique of power, the critique of labor inequalities is not uh, fully explored. Um, and acknowledged. And so intersectionality has sometimes just been reduced to um, all the different identities that make up who you are. <laughs> and so that critique of, you know, who gets access to resources, who has the power to live, even if we think, for example, about, um, you know, what just happened in Texas recently. You know, the, the whole framework was lovely about this framework that Black women developed, um, as well as other women of color, is that it can get at those questions at naming those problems and, and, and at matters of life and death. So we see who was detrimentally impacted by um, the power outage and the water outages here in Texas. Uh, we can see that by, for example, um, Ted Cruz being allowed, you know, going off code, whereas other people had to stay here and really um, deal with what was going on. So, so intersectionality um, can be applied to just about everything in society and, and, and in terms of also leading us and guiding us to making a better society. Um, also a pillar that guides my work is complicating whiteness. Um, I don't think we sometimes talk enough about race. Um, sometimes race is always um, equated to racism. So um, sometimes we avoid conversations of race by saying, oh, I'm not racist, instead of really looking at the ways in which race colors um, a lot of aspects of our lives in ways that are visible and not always apparently visible, right? And so just complicating that, um, even with the Capitol attack, right, the attack on the Capitol, um, there's so much going on now in which you could really, mm -hmm. you know, of course, look through these 
through an intersectional lens. But I think that the capital, um, the attack on the capital, um, teaches us that we can no longer avoid race and and complicating whiteness. Um, then another uh, pillar that guides my work is just having, um, you know, teaching in a way that, because I think teaching is a part of scholar activism. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important, um, that it's not enough just to go off and write a bunch of books and articles <laughs> and you're not teaching in the classroom and really connecting with students who are our future thinkers and, and scholars and, and activists. And so teaching in a way that really connects the material in the required text to what is going on in real life. Um, and I think, again, that comes out of that tradition of, of Black women thinkers. You know, we've never had the privilege of coming up with these lofty ideas and lofty theories that have no connection to people's everyday lives. And so while teaching, um, I always try to connect that, that material to what's going on and pushing students to really think about politics. Um, sometimes People don't want to look at the news because they say, oh, it's sad, it's depressing. Well, <laughs> that what's going on, well, you know, that's life. And then <laughs> what's going on in the news is still not separate and apart from what you're going through, right. you know? Um, and so um, it's important, to, I think, to always uh, maintain that connection between theory and people's lived experiences. I look at it from a historical standpoint because um, history is never done. It's always right here. And again, the, the attack on the Capitol showed that. I mean, that was just a, a, a 19th century version of white hostility and supremacy. It was really, really dated. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't even like a modern form right, <laughs> of right. It was the Confederate flags. Um, one group wanted to ride a ship, like one of those old ships across the Potomac to the actual capital. I mean, these are, that's, you know, reverting back to uh, colonial times and the colonial era. Mm -hmm. So that, that history still informs much of, of what we experience. It does. It does. Thank you for sharing that. You know, as you were talking about the uh, storming of the capital, uh, in its very antiquated ways, I did find one modern piece, and that okay. was the shaman. The shaman and the <laughs> vegan and the the demand for a vegan diet. Uh, oh, no, I know. <laughs> was that not insane? I, that was that was modern. That was unique. It was. It you was. You got to give them a little credit. <laughs> it, it transferred him to a prison so that so he that could he, get those vegan. Right. Right. You and, know? <laughs> and unheard of, right? And, and these things where truly, if that was any other body, embodiment, that yeah. would not even be a conversation. No, they, it wouldn't have. Some no. bodies wouldn't even have made it that far to have said conversation. Exactly. I would say yeah. he would not have been alive right. <laughs> to have that right. request. Yeah. And then thinking about the, 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 few but the the handfuls of white women who were in yes. those moments and thinking about the the ways in which race and gender all intersected yeah to yeah. create what what happened on yes. January 6th 
uh, yes. is something that I still think about because as you said, it is history repeating itself over mm -hmm. and over and over again. Uh, That's interesting because when you, when you talk about white women's involvement and you know, we think about it, um, the only person shot by a police officer was a mm -hmm. white woman, right? Mm -hmm. Who um, had broken, was actually gonna go to one of the congressional offices and had broken through that. And so, yeah, you're absolutely right. It, it, it makes you think about um, the history of white supremacy, right? Mm -hmm. um, even in, you know, amongst women. Right. And, um, you know, you think about the Daughters of the Confederacy, uh, which still exists, mm -hmm. um, some women's clubs, you know, who um, were, were really defenders of the Civil War, of the Confederacy. Mm -hmm. um, so that line still exists. Right. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, all the, I mean, it's there. So there's a lot to unpack that we, can, we can't look past anymore. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we could definitely go on because I'm like thinking about the classism and the ways in which most folks continue to scapegoat poor white folks. Of course, yes. they were there, but yes. more the people who were there more in, in, in strong numbers were your accountants and yes. uh, government yes. officials. And so, you know, you look yes. at all these intersecting identities and and then right the the, the structures that have created them to be that way and you say yeah. yeah there's very little that is new under the sun and that yeah. is just one isolated incidence within as Dr. Gloria Ladson Billings talks about the four pandemics <laughs> so, yes, exactly. that we've got going on at any given time plus the exactly. global pandemic exactly so, and the importance of race right mm -hmm. because across all those right. different intersecting yeah you can't escape it yeah yeah <laughs> so uh of course an, another topic we could talk about all day but let's move forward and i want to focus on how you see yourself currently engaging in scholar activism in either your research projects or your teaching yeah yeah great question um so again in terms of thinking about um i i look at power relations and intersectionality, um, but more so within the realm of labor. You know, so I've always been interested in thinking about um, women's labors and the labors that don't get um, normally recognized as important labors. Mm. Um, so that's what really drew me to domestic work and, and um, charting the history and migrations of Black women in, in domestic work. Um, these women of our families and they um, really shake the backbone of the civil rights movement. Um, for anyone who would like to read about that history, I suggest um, Pamela Nadison's book, Household Workers Unite, um, which really talk about, which talks about the, the power and the political activism of domestic workers. And they just do the labors that some people don't normally um, think about. Like when we walk into a building, um, you know, Sometimes we don't think about why is it sanitized? How are we able to work, you know, in clean conditions, you know? Um, and we definitely don't really think about um, the pay, the salaries, right, of people who do this very um, backbreaking work. Um, 
And so, um, so in that way, my work engages in scholar activism by pushing for labor justice uh, for the women of color who are primarily concentrated in household employment and have been um, for several centuries. Um, for so from the late so from emancipation until the 1970s, it was primarily African-American women. But what we see now is that many immigrant women of color are concentrated in domestic service. And they still are, are um, some of the most exploited laborers in the, in the U.S. economy. Um, so many still um, do not receive a living, a minimum wage, which means that they are far away from a living wage. Um, so people might have heard about um, the $15 minimum wage that um, congressional members are, are trying to pass that probably won't even make it, you know, to the COVID relief bill. And so this resistance, right, to $15 an hour, you know, just gives us a snapshot right. of what women who work low-wage jobs have to deal with. That $15, you can imagine trillion dollar relief package, but you can't think about or, or you're not even think about, you're resistant to raising the minimum wage to $15, which in some places is still not a living wage. Right, it's the bare <laughs> minimum. It's just the bare minimum. It's the bare minimum. Um, so I'm always interested in, in pushing for that um, through my work. And, and looking at the history of labor activism amongst um, women as a guide for how we might push for um, labor justice today. Um, and so I engage these questions in my teaching. So there's a, a course that I designed here called Women at Work, Race, Migrations, and Labors. And so we look at it from um, labor inequalities from historical perspectives as well as contemporary um, perspectives. Um, so looking at how contemporary immigration um, shapes um, women's lives now, especially in domestic work. Um, and what I like about teaching the class is that many students can connect to um, some of these experiences because some students um, at TWU um, work in household employment. Um, some students are caretakers of elderly people, um, um, usually white elderly people. Um, and so, and some of their parents um, work in domestic service. Um, so it's been really interesting, especially having students in class, Latinx students, um, who relate to um, that topic of labor justice in very real and concrete ways. I'm sure. And will you tell us, because I've always found this fascinating about your classes, the ways in which you structure your classes, because it is not just didactic. So, <laughs> and I think an important piece in thinking about scholar activism is thinking about the ways, not just what we teach, but also how we teach and moving from a very white Western way of lecturer and knowledge holder with mm -hmm. very boring PowerPoints and very mm -hmm. structured readings to movement and polyvocality mm -hmm. and, and rhythm and di dynamism. So can you mm -hmm. tell, me, tell us a little bit about, give us a snapshot of what a class looks like for you. 
That is wonderful. You know, okay, that's a great question because it, it brings me back. I, I try to recreate what drew me to academia, right? Because as I mentioned before, I hated school before going to college. I hated it. Uh, but what drew me to academia, where I said, oh, I'd like to become a professor, was uh, my first class in college. It was called Africa, uh, Africa Diaspora in the World. And the, the professor had us read Paolo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And that just blew my world open. <laughs> really did and all of everyone else in the class because he does um, this really powerful critique of the banking system, what he refers to as the banking system, uh, which is you tell students how to think, uh, but you don't guide students to discovery of their own ideas, of their own questions, of their own um, critical analyses, right? Um, and for the longest, and we see this even sometimes in education today, high school, middle school, that in some schools, there is this teaching for the test kind of approach, right? I'm just going to teach you what you need to know for this standardized test. Um, and, and, and people, and shout out to teachers in middle school and high school who are pushing against that, uh, because there are some teachers who are doing that. Uh, but especially in college, I think that, um, and in graduate school, we have the room to just kind of think a little differently and approach it differently. So, you know, I approach each class with the aim of just more than anything, helping um, or guiding students to asking incisive questions and not approaching the class as, you know, think this particular way. <laughs> but you should ask incisive questions about things that you don't know because the ability to ask those critical questions um, can really open to learning so much more and to having and, and designing that learning journey for yourself. Um, so, of course, there's certain concepts and theories um, that I'd like for students to understand, um, but not approaching it with this, as you said, very didactic, um, you were supposed to only think in this particular way. Um, can really open up the whole learning experience. So, um, so instead of giving a lot of lectures, I provide context for the reading, important, you know, contextual information for the readings that I assign. Um, but students, um, you know, guide some of the discussions with facilitation questions. So, um, you know, developing facilitation commentaries and questions um, really, I found, push people to engage the text and not just read for the sake of completion. Uh, but to really engage in with the text, right in the margins, what you don't agree with or what is challenging to you. What, what does this particular passage, you know, encourage you to ask, right? So that even you're not just looking at books uh, that as absolute knowledge, right? Because no book really is complete. Mm -hmm. No journal article is complete. So um, having those open conversations um, provides room for us to build upon the knowledge um, in those readings. Right. And again, y'all, y'all know I'm biased by now because I have 
served as a graduate assistant for Dr. Phyllis Cunningham <laughs> and have taken her classes, and she is right. My books were filled <laughs> in margins. <laughs> and what I always appreciated was, and I say appreciated, but I also appreciate now as the learning science nerd that I am in both experiential learning and academic coaching, recognizing that when students have the ability to apply and create and evaluate the information that they're taking in and then teach it to other folks and to engage in such uh, discussions, particularly around and, and get into conflict around such discussions, control, yeah. of course, yeah. but yeah. Yeah. In, in those moments of rupture and disagreement, that's where yes. the learning happens. And the more that we're able to have the space and the mm -hmm. grace to do so is mm -hmm. where we retain information, where we are able to make some life changes or some paradigm shifts. And I've also really appreciated, and I don't know if you do this in your women at work, uh, uh, at work class, but in your black feminist theory classes, you always paired music with what you were talking about for the week. And so also giving people with multiple varying learning preferences, visual, kinetic, uh, auditory, and so on and so forth, different ways to engage and make links from past to present to future uh, is one of those ways, right, uh, as Ebony was also talking about uh, the pedagogy of the oppressed, of thinking through and thinking with the yeah. oppressed and thinking with the, the, the other folks out there who are in the struggle to do this work to link activism and scholarship inside and outside of the academy. And I'm so glad you you brought that up because, yeah, you know, and, and, and this connects to your earlier question about pillars um, and being rooted in a Black feminist tradition because um, academia barred us for so long. We could only theorize, most of us, through music and through art. And so pairing those readings, um, as you as you said, was a way to engage um, people differently in terms of learning and also to explore theories and ideas that sometimes can't be put into words on the pages of a journal article, right? Because for an article and a book, even if you're pushing against the grain, there are some stand, there's a, there's a structure, an overall kind of structure that you still need to adhere to. Mm -hmm. And you find that with music and with film, um, that you're able to have um, even more room to explore some of those histories and ideas, some things that you, that just can't quite, that sometimes the nuances and complexities can't be captured in a book or an article, ironically. <laughs> and so I'm still learning how to do that with media so much is going. I was telling um, this class I'm teaching that's cross-listed between TWU and Spelman. I said, you know, you all are coming up, I mean, in an age that is really so exciting. There's so much going on in terms of film and documentaries. Um, I'm thinking about Lovecraft Country and... <laughs> You know, students were connecting to Black women's history through 
references and Lovecraft Country. So, you know, this whole Black futurisms, you know, approach um, is really implementing history in very relatable ways mm -hmm. um, across generations, but especially to younger generations. Um, gosh, I'm thinking so much. Um, there's a documentary about Malcolm X uh, that I'd love to teach one day. It's called Who Killed Malcolm X? But it really delves into um, the nuances and complexities of archival research. So you can engage, right, even methodology through some of these documentaries. Um, there's a new document, well, a new film about Billie Holiday. I mean, there's just so much that you can do um, with film and the creativity that's happening. Um, because Black feminist thought is really being, you know, created in television shows. I teach Insecure, <laughs> Issa Rae's Insecure. So there's a lot to experiment with in the classroom regarding scholar activism. Mm -hmm. Yes, and you know, this could quickly become a, a talk about Black feminist thought in Patricia Hill Collins, you mm -hmm. know, foundational book because all of the tenets of Black feminist theory just run throughout your research yeah. and your courses and thinking about the ethics of care and community and dialogue, it's just, it's, it's all the way there. So. Then I ask this question, what's the greatest gift you've received in engaging in your scholar activism work? Wow, yeah, that's a good question. Um, the greatest gift, that's interesting. I think witnessing um, students' growth over time, you know, even beyond the class, um, you know, the the, the immediate confines or boundaries of a semester. Um, so I, I, I enjoy the fact that um, with students um, for multiple years, uh, because you just see them grow into their own trajectories. And I think um, some of that is because of their own scholar activist approaches, right, to the classes. Um, so that has been wonderful and just seeing all of the important work that um, students on, on campus are doing. Um, psychology students, group of students in psychology that tried to start a Southern Poverty Law Center, um, you know, and I because of some scholar activism that's going on across the campus. Um, as well as in women's and gender studies. Um, so organizing events about reproductive justice and, and um, racial profiling that you've been a part of and that you've co-organized. Um, so that has just really been the greatest gift is seeing um, this approach and these ideas live on um, through future um, scholars and thinkers. Wonderful. And then, of course, the opposite question then is, what challenges do you encounter as a scholar activist and how do you navigate those? Yeah. Uh, well, the challenges and the resistance come in multiple forms, um, sometimes from other uh, uh, academics. <laughs> so sometimes when you are presenting at a conference and um, there are still people, there are still academics who are hostile to intersectionality. 
There are still um, academics who are hostile to Black feminist thought. Um, so a lot of the resistance even comes from within um, academia. Mm. Sometimes it comes in the form of um, a response to an article manuscript or even a book manuscript. Um, and hostility in terms of centering um, even Black women in your work or centering race um, can sometimes generate hostile responses from reviewers, depending on who's reviewing your work. And um, thank goodness I didn't have this problem in terms of TWU, in terms of tenure. Um, but there's so many um, Black women scholars who experience that and then aren't able to publish as much as they'd like to, then that impacts, right, um, chances for earning tenure um, or being promoted to full. So this hostility and this resistance and pushback is um, very much systemic. So ways... I've navigated some of the resistance that I've gotten is to stay the course and know that what I'm doing <laughs> is what I should be doing. Right. <laughs> and pushing back, uh, especially when it's necessary, um, even in academic spaces, and, um, and just continuing the work, staying the course. Um, because I, you know, I received some pushback even in graduate school and it got to a point where I thought, is this really for me? You know, is this, is, is grad school, is academia really a place for me? Um, and thank goodness I have a wonderful mother who said, girl, you better finish this program. <laughs> what is wrong with you? Because you're going to stop your work and they're going to continue being who they are. And then you would have, you know, deferred your dreams and your right. goals, aspirations. So, you know, it's about, you know, staying, the, and staying connected to family. You know, I think um, Black women across the academy, whether on the PN staff, wherever, you're going to face something. And I, you know, I just suggest also remaining connected to um network supportive networks um so and that also kind of keeps you keeps you going and people outside of academia i always think it's helpful to talk to people who um who are not the politics of of higher education okay so besides support systems and stay in the course what are your go-to self-care practices Movies. I love <laughs> sometimes you just have to break away. You know what I mean? You do, you do for your sanity. Sometimes you just have to have a cutoff point. And so I have not mastered this yet, but I'm working on it in terms of um just shutting things down, right? Sometimes I'm not be um uh, connected to that's campus related past seven o'clock sometimes i have a choice um but also creating boundaries to just enjoy um life and so engaging it in whatever um brings you joy and so for me it's reading you know books uh so a lot of non-academic books too 
um, uh, looking at the interesting work that's coming out, you know, um, it's self-care to me to look at Lovecraft Country. I know there's some horror aspects to it. <laughs> But I like looking at it. Uh, Janelle Monae's, uh, what was it, Antebellum? Is that, that was, mm -hmm. the, you know, looking at, um, again, art gives me inspiration. And, and that's a form of self-care, you know. Um, yeah. And enjoying time with family when, when I can. Of course. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Phillips Cunningham. We've come to our last question, at least for me. And then I'm going to open it up to the audience. And it's actually a sentence stem. So complete the following sentence stem. For students who are eager to engage in scholar activism, it is important to. It is important to know where you come from. Mm. It's so important. Um, especially for students from marginalized communities. Uh, you know, it's important rootedness. Um, and who you are, um, who your family members are, your life histories. Um, and again, you know, history will report it, but it's important to just know where you come from and the traditions that you come out. Um, because the people who came before us laid a rich tradition of uh, rich traditions, uh, multiple of activism and so many forms of resistance, of resilience, of survival. Um, that is important to remember as you are expanding and building upon what they have already established. Um, so knowing that and having some rootedness in that. Um, also, it's so important as we discussed before, to be politically engaged. Um, we really don't have the luxury of um, turning off the news uh, or not knowing going on around us. Because if you really want to scholar activism, you have to remain in conversation with what's going on right now. Um, so, you know, tune in to C-SPAN and also you know, question the information that you get. Um, that's what the, the past, especially four years, has really um, revealed, is the way in which um, information, no, lies circulate, um, and conspiracy circulate in ways that are presented as the truth. You know, um, one of my good friends from high school, um, she's a high school teacher now, and she said that one of her students, as they were talking about what happened here in Texas, and one of her students said, well, that happened in Texas because um, their, their energy system, their power system is based on mobile energy, and it had to do with the new green, yeah. And this was a teenager, right? She didn't know any better, you know, but she's getting this information um, through, you know, all these social media websites, through all sorts of, of sites. So I think that engaging in scholar activism, a, a, a new skill you have to develop is deciding what is truth, right? Is What is true? Um, it's interesting. I never thought I'd have to before before now but um 
that has become a challenge and something I'm thinking through even in my teaching, how do you teach students how to navigate all of this information that they come across, mm -hmm. that um, some of it are, you know, that information are just, you know, conspiracy theories. So. Yeah, critical literacy is so important. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it always has been, but like you said, the last four years, and I foresee moving forward, it's going to continue to be so important. And so with that, thank you so much, Dr. Phillips Cunningham, for answering my questions. Folks, we've got about eight minutes left. So if you have any questions or comments for Dr. PC, feel free to throw them either in the chat uh, to all panelists and attendees or put them in the Q&A and I will ask them on your behalf. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your week and I look forward to seeing you at the next Answering the Call program, which will be up and running in April. So see you soon and take care.